0: The 360 on Energy and Carbon, hosted by 360 Energy. On this week's episode, we have part two of our conversation with Phil DeLuna. For part one of this conversation, listen to episode 106, Carbon Capture and Removal. Now let's get into the episode with Phil.
1: So now I'm more of the economic kind of finance side. So here's my question to you What are the economics of capturing carbon?
2: For sure. So, carbon removal is expensive, right? Like, it's because the biggest cost comes down to the energy. It's the energy that's required to regenerate that sorbit or the energy that's required to squeeze the sponge. And actually, like, the filtering out, the catching of CO2 at low concentrations isn't that difficult because it's a, an exothermic process, meaning that there are some materials that want to preferentially absorb CO2 or, or, or catch CO2 versus other gases. Because they preferentially attach to CO2, it takes a lot of energy to split them back up again when you wanna regenerate. And so the, the greatest cost on economics is the energy side of things. To give you a sense of numbers, it can cost anywhere between $500 to $1,000 per ton of CO2 today to capture carbon dioxide from the air, which is a lot of money. But we have to remember that every industry or technology was very expensive in the beginning. When you look at solar cells, when you look at transistors, the amount of money it costs for the first of a kind was far greater than what we have today. Solar cells uh, exponentially decreased and they're like 90% less or uh, 10% of the cost that they were when they were first got to market. So that's where we are in this, this life cycle of this technology. Uh, where we want to get to, a lot of people talk about, you know, $100 per ton of CO2 as the ultimate goal. Uh, I actually think that it, it, it doesn't need to be $100 per ton. That's actually an arbitrary number. What we need to think about is the marginal abatement cost curve of decarbonizing different industries. And for decarbonizing things like steel or cement or even heating in um, uh, in existing homes or existing office spaces the cost of doing that could be as high as $300 per ton $200 per ton of co2 so carbon removal needs to get below a sizable amount of the marginal abatement cost curve and that ends up becoming the market that it can sell into it ends up being cheaper to remove carbon dioxide directly from the from the air than it does to completely build a new steel plant or to completely decarbonize all of the office buildings in in Canada. And that's the that's the price point which I we think it's around $200 to $300 per ton of CO2 that we're working to get towards and that uh, the industry needs to to reach.
1: Thanks Phil. So the other side of the equation is selling the credits, right? Yes. So that's effectively when you're shooting for $100 or $300 you're thinking that's where, the, that's where the revenue comes in based on, on this whole piece. Uh, is, that, is that the side of the equation that will be important for you to be able to sell?
2: Exactly. Of course. The, the revenue side of the equation is the most important side of the equation. So let me first back up and say, like, what is the total addressable market? Who are our customers? Why are we selling to? First, I'll say that many, many companies have made net zero by twenty fifty commitments that they have no idea how they're going to reach. They made these commitments and announcements a few years ago when they didn't even do their baselining. And so that now, initially, it was a PR thing, and they're like, okay, we'll just announce this. We have lots of time to go do it. But that's not good enough anymore. There's pressure not only from stakeholders, shareholders, uh, the general public, but also governments to hold people to account. If you're going to set a target, you can't greenwash. You have to actually do something. You can't just set some far-off target in 2050. You need to set interim targets that show you're on the pathway to 1.5 degrees there are actually board members that are being sued and being held liable for the organization setting targets. And so this has become like an existential and personal risk for organizations to claim and set targets that they have no intent of meeting. On top of that, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States are coming out with climate um, disclosures. So if you're a publicly traded company, you need to actually start disclosing your CO2 emissions. Now, all of these companies that made these emissions reductions commitments have to uh, live up to them and if they don't people will know people will see and even the ones that didn't make any of these commitments it'll be much easier for the public and the market to see what those emissions are for these companies and to pay with their wallet now it's becoming a much more specific and an existential risk to your company if your competitor has a greener cleaner way of producing your product at the same cost, but a lower carbon intensity. Or even if it's a smaller increased cost, the green premium that people are willing to pay, especially now with uh, subsidies like the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, as well as uh, the, uh, the CCUS, the Carbon Capitalization Storage Investment Tax Credit, and the different tax credits that Canada has, has uh, put forward in response to the IRA. So now we have all of these companies that made these commitments, they're being measured, they're being watched, they're being judged. They have to do something and they're realizing, oh no, it's actually a lot harder to reduce our emissions than we thought. One, scope three is very difficult for us to control. Two, our electricity grid, again, scope two is really difficult for us to control. And, and, and three, even all of our suppliers, unless you're a big company like Amazon, difficult for you to control. So what do you do? You have to start purchasing carbon credit offsets. And in order to purchase carbon credit offsets, you have to do so responsibly and reasonably And there's been immense scrutiny on nature-based offsets on companies uh, and projects where it's been revealed that the nature-based offsets they're buying are essentially worthless, that they're not actually removing CO2, that they're being double counted, that the the tree that was planted actually burned in a forest fire. And so there's this movement away from nature-based offsets to more higher quality, more tech-based, more very specific and measurable carbon credit and tech-based offsets. Like what we're doing, direct carbon dioxide removal. So this means that there is a massive supply and we're seeing a massive supply and essentially zero demand. There are no companies that are really building this at the scale that are able to to supply markets, except for two, uh, Carbon Engineering, which was purchased by Occidental Petroleum, and and Climeworks. They're the only two companies that are really doing anything at scale. And so we need to accelerate the pace of, of the build-out of these plants so we can get down the cost curve, so we can learn. That helps the cost side. But also because the, so the demand is great and will only continue to become more great. Uh, to give you a sense, you know, there are companies like Amazon and Microsoft and J.P. Morgan that are spending millions of dollars in pre-purchases just so they can get supply for uh, carbon removals and companies that haven't even built a commercial plant yet. Um, that's the level of frothiness in this market that we're experiencing, and there won't the the, the the companies that are able to scale the quickest will have first mover advantage and will be able to uh, supply those markets. But even by twenty thirty, we're expecting a seventy percent mismatch between demand and supply in the market for carbon removals, so, and and that's only going to get worse if you think about it. Carbon removals is a short. On humanity's ability to reduce emissions fast enough. It's a backstop. It's basically not hitting our goals. We continue to not hit our goals. And the worse that that happens, the more that we're going to need to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. The, the slower we are at turning off the tap, the more we're going to have to pull the plug. And so, that's exactly what's happening in Canada.
1: Thank you for that.
2: Yeah,
3: I, I couldn't help noticing, excuse me saying this, but you've been McKinseyized when you're starting to talk about marginal abatement cost curves. Because if I remember <laughs> rightly, they first introduced them uh, for energy efficiency projects. But I don't know about asking you this question, given this rapid life that you're leading. And the, your answer may change over the course of this podcast, but it is, <laughs> can you tell us about the project you're working on?
2: Yes, of course. So let me tell you about what we're doing uh, at Deep Sky and what my main main role and job is. So we we're about to announce a a, a, a significant Series A close next week, and that's going to fund um, a couple of things. The first is what we're building called Deep Sky Alpha, which will be our testing and validation and pilot center, the world's first uh, carbon removal research and innovation center dedicated completely to carbon removals. What is it and how does it work? We've been going around the world, meeting all these startup companies that are building reactors and realizing that they don't have a place to test them. So, and the best thing that you could do to support a startup company is to be their customer. So we're going around, we're finding companies that are producing reactors anywhere from 50 tons per year to up to a thousand tons per year for both air and ocean. And we're outright purchasing their pilots and bringing them to Canada. And Deep Sky Alpha is where we're gonna host them. We're gonna take all of these technologies and then put them in the same place so we can assess how they operate in our temperatures, in our seasonal variation, in our humidity, from the hottest day in the summer to the coldest day in winter, and understand which ones work. We then take the best technologies from Deep Sky Alpha, and then we build commercial facilities and plants with them. We're calling them Deep Sky 1, Deep Sky 2, Deep Sky 3, et cetera. We've started already on the construction, planning, the architectural design, the engineering design, the procurement of equipment for Deep Sky Alpha. We've identified a site And our plan is to be operational, removing CO2 from the air in September of next year, if not earlier. Our our timelines are incredibly aggressive, but that's what we're focused on. At the same time, we're building the infrastructure for storage. We are identifying regions in Quebec that have geologic potential to sequester and store permanently and safely underground. We are then going to actually start drilling um, wells so that we can test and measure what the permeability, the porosity, and the characteristics of the subsurface are so that we can actually start sequestering CO2 underground. Um, We are doing that and starting those operations in the spring when the ground thaws. So we are moving extremely quickly. And to give you a sense of of this company, our our CEO uh, was the managing director of Omers Ventures. He just started relatively recently. So for your listeners, Omers Ventures is a $3 billion venture capital, early stage tech investing, arm of OMERS, the Ontario uh, pension plan. So we are building rapidly a world-class team to start building this infrastructure, getting steel into the ground as quickly as possible. And the reason we want to do Deep Sky Alpha, not only so that we learn and that our, our partners learn, so we help them develop their technology, but it's so that the public learns and we're developing and building this thing. So it doesn't look like a chemical plant. It's going to look more like an apple store than it does a chemical plant. We want it to be an exhibition. We want it to be a place where people can come and learn about the technology and we can help educate and move public perception in a direction away from uh, the fear and uh, the uh, concern that is associated with oil and gas.
3: Sounds exciting. I think a visit might be in order. Yeah,
2: I
1: think so, John.
2: Yeah, summer <laughs> I, of twenty four. Come on by.
1: I'm almost Phil. There was once a real one of our speakers that talked about it, it has to be silver buckshot versus a silver bullet. I and, think uh, it's you fun. may have known who That, yeah, it was Phil. <laughs> uh, but it almost sounds like this is a silver bullet. Is that true, or it sounds like it's such a big deal?
2: It is a big deal, but it's again one tool in our toolbox. Right. So I, as the first time I was on the show, I said, you know, there, there's a, a, a step process that you have to The first step is protect nature. We'll protect what we have. The second thing is to um, get renewables everywhere. The third is to electrify everything. The fourth is to decarbonize, hard to abate sectors, by reinventing the way we make things. And the fifth is to capture carbon. So we are just one sliver of, of all the things that we need to do. Um, we still need to electrify as much as we can. We still need to reduce our dependency on fossil fuels. We still need to develop new technologies for agriculture to make them more resilient, especially as we have a changing and worsening climate. We still need to do all of these things. But for me, I I wanted to focus my attention and my energy on, uh, on the sliver that I think is the hardest and that is yet to be developed today. We, we know how to make renewables and solar cells, and the cost is actually cheaper than fossil fuels today. We just have to go implement those things. We have to actually get people making them. Um, we know how to protect Earth, just leave it alone. You know, we know how to, to decarbonize um, hard-to-abate sectors uh, and electrify things. It's just a matter of cost. We kind of know how to remove carbon dioxide from the air and the ocean. We know the tech works, we know the science works. It's simple gas separation and energy handling but what we don't know yet is how to scale it and so that's what i'm I'm devoting and focusing the rest of ho- hopefully i think <laughs> knock on wood the rest of my career to do
1: sounds fantastic
3: okay I, I wonder if we can sort of move ourselves away from the technology and perhaps call a bit on some of your recent experience and about what we what we're calling leadership and, and decarbonization and to start that off, the, the question I want to ask you, I, I think we all know the answer to it, but I, I want to hear it from you. What do you see as the primary drivers for business leaders to decarbonize?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, when we think about decarbonization and the evolution of, of ESG, or however you want to call it, a lot of it started off being almost in a PR thing. It was a communications. A lot of these sustainability initiatives started in the marketing departments. In the past few years, that has completely changed. It is now core and existential in operations. The chief risk officer of JP Morgan has climate under their file. So we've moved from a world where it's just something nice to say and signal to the market because it's part of how we earn business to This is something that is impacting the core operations of how we make money. And so when we think about business leaders, or if you're a business leader and you're thinking about sustainability, or if you're not thinking about sustainability, you need to start now. Because if you don't, you're going to be left behind by all of your peers who are working on their sustainability strategies, who are shoring up their supply of clean technology and climate solutions, who are investing in how they're going to decarbonize their supply chain, because... If it's not transition risk, if it's not policy risk, if it's not customer risk and stakeholder management engagement risk, this is a confluence and multiplication of every single risk you can think of in one place. And if you're not addressing it, you are going to get screwed.
3: Well, that's that's blunt. Uh, can can I just have a, a, an extra on that? We, we, we all, are on this call, I think, understand ESG, environmental, social and governance issues, and I, you mentioned it, and you, you've you've been involved with McKinsey. We are seeing here in the UK a number of commentators are almost pushing back on ESG and referring to almost putting it as as a woke issue. I wonder if you've got any comment on that.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's political theater and noise. Frankly, I mean, ultimately, yeah. when you think about like what what is the motivation for this? What is the motivation for for looking at ESG and, and calling it woke. Uh, first of all, I cringe anytime anyone says woke. Like, what is, if you were to- I'm ask am that, why do you too? Yeah, it's true. No, but if you were to go onto the street and you ask every single person to define what woke means, you'll get oh. 10 different answers, right? Like completely different answers. So, I mean, I think it's a flash in the pan. I think it's one of these things where, you know, institutional investors, pension funds, folks that are actually looking at this in the long-term are, and, and corporations that are planning for the future, whether it's called ESG, whether it's called sustainability, whether it's called resilience, it doesn't matter. They still have to address these risks. And so yes. you can have this pushback on ESG and, and it's, there's a lot of confluence, right? Because you ESG often gets lumped in or, or, or conflated with equity, diversity and inclusion, which of course it should be with, with governance, which is actually the most important piece. Like how do you ensure good governance in an organization? How do you ensure that processes are being accurately and morally done so the, it, it's a complex term. It's a flashpoint. It's a way for people to pit ourselves against each other, but it's temporary and it's silly.
1: I agree. Thank you. Well stated. Okay. So Phil, because this piece of the podcast is about leadership and obviously the ownership that you work with has tremendous leadership in the work that they're doing, but because we have a lot of executives that listen to this, what should business leaders be doing to move the dial on climate change?
2: Yeah. I mean, of course, the first thing is you can't manage what you don't measure. So ensure that you have a robust way of understanding what your emissions are. I think that's the number one thing that you can do. The second thing that you can do is start thinking about what the risks are if you don't address your emissions, Uh, whether that's in this quarter, next year, uh, five years from now or beyond. And it can be something as small as if you don't have a, a reasonable and serious sustainability strategy, that's going to impact your hiring capability because uh, younger generations take this very seriously. To all the way as, oh no, we have assets that are exposed to climate risk on a coast that may not exist in five years. So having a better understanding of that is really, really important. And then finally, the, the last thing you can do is actually do something about it and either invest in you know operational improvements in technology in a strategy that helps you decarbonize put pressure on your suppliers so that especially if you have the buying power to help help them decarbonize their emissions educate your organization and the other folks at the leadership table at the board about why this is important create a standing agenda item at every board meeting on how you're going to address sustainability and climate risk have that be core and piece to uh, all of the leadership tables that you're a part of, and and you know I, I always, I've always said that just like there we when society went through a you know a digital transformation we went from analog to digital, sustainability is the same thing. It's not just one discrete sector. It's a transition and a transformation that every business is going to have to go through. And if you're prepared for it, you will um, profit. If you don't, if you're not prepared for it, you'll get left behind.
3: Thank you. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Sort of keeping on this this leadership tack it 's something we 've seen and we know, but some leaders are engaged, and some are not why, mm. why is that what what you know I mean I think all of us on this on this podcast would go you 've got to be engaged it 's something you 've mm-hmm. got to do. it makes business sense if you want to be there in the future, get engaged with sustainability in its
2: broadest sense. Why are some not engaged because we run on quarterly cycles of of profit, of market, of understanding yeah. what what we need to do and how we're assessed and judged as an organization and as a company in the market. And it's ultimately a tragedy of time. Uh, it's That's essentially it, Time scale. We all know, and I, I, I've spoken to many, many executives and many leaders, they know, they're having conversations with their kids and their grandkids at the dining room table. They know how important this is. But then you weigh that against declining profits with um, geopolitical uncertainty, with labor issues, with inflation. You weigh that against all of these short-term challenges. I don't blame leaders for not thinking about this stuff in the short term because there are a million other things that are on fire. But if you don't think about it, about the fire that's literally coming, um, you're going to get burned. And so I, I, I th- this is why I, I think that um, institutionalizing it and building structures within organizations that allow for that long-term thinking and allow for that risk mitigation, um, especially when it comes to climate, is, is so critical.
1: Phil, in in the last two years, like what changes have you seen in the uptake on decarbonization from your experience?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I was working. Uh, uh, So McKinsey is not a cheap (laughs) firm to hire. It's a very expensive (laughs) firm to hire. And the fact that McKinsey started as a sustainability practice shows that one, that there's demand and that there are actually customers willing to pay the incredibly expensive amount of fees to hire McKinsey to solve those problems. I think, you know, just look at where the capital is flowing and that can show you the momentum. I'll give you another example. In venture capital investment, over the last couple of years, uh, most of venture capital investment has been down, especially in the tech-based sector. There is a crash in tech and that is continuing today, ma- massive layoffs everywhere. But investment into climate tech has actually either stayed the same or increased. So really the changes all you have to do is follow the money and see where people believe the growth is to be fair enough. Okay.
0: Well, Phil, thank you so much for coming on today. We talked about everything from carbon capture and removal to leadership and decarbonization. So on that note, what is the biggest takeaway for our listeners?
2: Oh, the biggest takeaway. You know, I th- I think the biggest takeaway I'd like to leave your listeners with is the, first of all, the nuance and difference between carbon capture and carbon removals. Second is that we actually need to remove carbon dioxide from our atmosphere and our historical emissions to get back to, to climate stability. And third is the technology exists. We just need to scale it. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do. That's what Deep Sky is trying to do. Um, so if, if any of your listeners are interested about speaking to me uh, or about this topic or any other topics that I've spoken on this podcast about before, um, feel free to reach out. I'm always, always happy to connect.
0: Thanks, Phil. John what's your biggest takeaway?
3: Well when we were knew we were doing this I was doing a bit of reading and it struck me that some people think that what we're talk what, what we might be talking about is science fiction and um, you'll see where this is going and that led me on to I, I'm a fan of science fiction and I, I came across something that Arthur C Clarke wrote and I think It is so appropriate. I held it back because I wondered whether it would would fit. But he he said, every revolutionary idea passes through three phases characterised by the views of its critics. One, it'll never work. It's pure fantasy. Two, it might work, but it's not worth doing. Three, I said it was a good idea all along. (laughs) (laughs) And I I think we might well... I think we might well see that fitting with the, the carbon capture re- removal because I think a lot of people I know who are, shall we say, hardcore old school technology fans think it's it's science fiction and, it, and and also some think it's a distraction from solving the problem. But I think Phil has made the point. It's not a distraction from solving the problem. We've been tardy in solving the problem. We're going to have to mop it up somehow.
0: Thanks for that, John. Now, Dave, you have a hard act to follow, but what's your biggest (laughs) takeaway?
1: (laughs) I do. I do. So there's so many things that were addressed, but I think, let me start with this. Phil conveying in the next 50 years, it's just going to get worse and people don't really understand it. So, And that's going to motivate people, but also governments. So I I think uh, regulations will occur. Like it's just gonna happen. People are gonna have to act. I think the idea what Phil's work doing and removing carbon from the atmosphere, it seems to me that it's a critical piece. And I'm so pleased and as a proud Canadian, as an entrepreneur, Hearing that we could lead the charge in this piece, I, I'm fascinated by this, and I'm looking forward to hear more and see more. And and Phil, you know, perhaps if we could, we'll take you up on that visit, maybe in 2024 to take a look at this, because I, I I think it's not only fantastic, but it will be fascinating for for us to watch and Canadians and around the world to see how Canada can lead in this space. So thank you so much for all the things that you discussed and addressed today. It was it's quite a clinic on climate change and what people need to do and yeah. consider. So thank you.
2: So, thank thank, thank you for having me. I was Sorry. just going to say, you know, thank you for having me and absolutely bring bring, bring the equipment. We'll do it right on site. You'll hear the whirl, whirling of the fans in the background. It's going to be a lot of fun.
0: I was just thinking, right. I'm like the 360 on energy and carbon field trip uh, and we'll go <laughs> oh, to yes. um, Deep Sky Alpha.
1: Yes. Yes. We're
0: all up for that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dave, John, and Phil for your time today. Thank Thank you,
1: everyone. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. Thanks, Phil.
0: That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360 Energy Inc. Tune in to our podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, Anchor, or other listening platforms by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360 Energy Inc. Email us your feedback at podcast at 360energy.net or comment on our LinkedIn posts.